The teaching text for today comes from Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can take a seat. Thanks, Kyle. Who can tell me who this uh, swarthy-looking group of gentlemen is on the screen? I think that's more chest hair than is usually allowed at church, but uh, anybody know who this is? Van Halen, that's right. This is, I, <laughs> those eyes are piercing. It, you know, it's funny about this, it's like the chest hair follows, follows you wherever you go in the picture. <laughs> I don't think we can leave that up anymore. <laughs> this is Van Halen. Van Halen was like the first true arena rock band of the 80s. So there have been been other people playing big shows, you know, in arenas. They'd pull up with three semis full of gear. But Van Halen, when they started doing these big tours, just blew everybody out of the water. They'd show up with nine semis full of gear and trussing and lights and sound equipment. And when they'd roll into town, it was a really, really big deal when Van Halen would show up. And in 1988... If you had a Pontiac Firebird and you were bumping Panama, you were like the coolest guy out there. Van Halen was, was awesome. They were such a big deal. And, you know, like people get, get successful. They, they become a bit eccentric. They have, think the world revolves around them. And so um, Van Halen was, uh, there's, there's a story out there, a rumor out there about this one little thing that Van Halen did that actually turns out to be true. So... When Van Halen would go on these tours, they'd have a writer on their contract that was, you know, pages and pages and pages long of technical requirements for what it would take to host Van Halen. And a tiny little detail in the writer of their contract was in the green room where Van Halen would would be before and after the shows. They would have to have a large bowl of M&Ms with all of the brown M&Ms removed. Have you heard this? It's true. It's actually true. And there's this one show where uh, Van Halen showed up. Everything had been set up. They went, be- went back to the green room. They saw a bowl with a ton of brown M&Ms, and then they trashed the place and left, and they didn't play the show. Now, people think Van Halen was just like, they were just, they, they were deluded. They thought that the world revolved around them. But for them, the, brown, the, uh, the bowl with no brown M&Ms played a very practical purpose. So they had all this trussing and all this gear that weighed thousands of pounds. And they would put the trussing way, way up, and people would have to, like, get up there. The gear is above them. Even they had requirements about, like, how much weight capacity the floor had. If these technical requirements weren't observed, like, with tremendous attention to detail, people could die. This gear could fall. Uh, There was a tremendous risk of a loss of life or harm. And so Van Halen put this tiny little detail in the writer of their contract, which was a tell. If the people who are hosting, if the the venue hosts have paid 
this much attention to detail that they have removed the brown M&Ms, they can be trusted to have followed through on all of the other technical requirements that uh, would ensure safety for the band and the, the roadies and all of those people. Uh, they, the band had a purpose, they had something they wanted to do, but, but they needed to ensure safety. They needed to ensure that no one was going to be harmed. Now, in a, in a similar way, Sabbath, which is, is the theme for today, this theme of choosing rest over frenzy, Sabbath plays a, a practical purpose in the lives of the people of God. Uh, the people of God are called and entrusted with the promises and the purposes of God. The New Testament says that the church, we are ambassadors of Christ to the world. Can you imagine if the president called you, Sarah, and said, Sarah, I need you to represent our country to North Korea. What a terrifying responsibility. Or Grayson, I need you to go represent us to Iran. It's a terrifying responsibility to represent at one kingdom to another. Uh, the New Testament says that we are ambassadors of Christ. That's a holy and a big purpose. We're called to make disciples of Jesus, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. We're supposed to fulfill the call of Israel to be a blessing to the nations. The people of God have been entrusted with promises and the purposes of God. And this is high-stakes work. This is important. If we do our thing, like there's a kingdom consequence. It's a big deal. But in addition to this as being like disciples of Jesus, we also have family and we have friends and and we have, you know, responsibilities and things to tend to. And we also have our work. We've got this awesome responsibility of the calling of the kingdom of God. And then we also live with our feet on the ground and we have to tend to life and to work. And work uh, means lots of things for lots of people. Work could mean like a, a job where you're, you're paid a paycheck and, you know, standard employment. Work could be parenting. Work could be caring for aging parents, which is increasingly true for people as they're living a longer life. Work could be uh, caring for, for grandchildren or volunteering a lot. And I bet for 90% of us, when asked, like, how are you doing, the first answer you want to give is busy. You know, how many of you find, catch yourself saying busy and you're like, dang it, I, I don't want to just say I'm busy all the time. Uh, for 90% of us, the first answer we give is busy. Uh, we're, we work really hard or we're certainly very occupied. Now, I would just ask, how many would say at, at some level, like, you're worn out? Okay, yeah, you're tired, like your soul is exhausted, your brain or your body is exhausted. That's, that's true for most of us. How in the middle of a crazy and chaotic life could anybody afford to take one entire day off every week as God just commanded the people of Israel in Scripture here? And as we're going to see in this conversation, God desires not to add one more thing to stress us out. But the Spirit of God this morning wants to give us a gift in the form of rest, that God knows how we are built. What if we worked on the assumption this morning that God knows completely how we are built, what our body and our soul and our relational needs are, and wants to give you something that you need? He doesn't want something from you. God wants something for you this morning. A weekly rhythm of rest is a sign of an orderly, cultivated life. And to cultivate this kind of life, as we're going to have a conversation, requires clarity about our identity more than anything. So last week, as I said, we started this conversation on learning to be well. We talked about presence versus escapism. Today, we're talking about rest versus frenzy. 
And so uh, the command or the invitation of Jesus we discussed last week from Matthew 11 is so good. I, I started the service. Let's read this together. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The invitation of God is to find rest for our souls. So today, rest versus frenzy. So in the text that we just read, this is Deuteronomy chapter 5. The people of Israel are on, they're at the Jordan River, and they're overlooking the promised land. They have been enslaved for 400 years. Think about 400 years. What happened in 1618? I tried to find something pertinent, and I couldn't find anything that we would all recognize. Uh, 400 years of slavery. At the end of 400 years, God raises up this deliverer by the name of Moses who delivers them in a name of a God that most of them don't know and have not heard of. Maybe their ancestors had heard of him. God performed these mighty signs called plagues that were terrifying, setting up God's dominion and and sovereignty over against all of the the so-called gods of the Egyptians. Uh, Pharaoh ultimately relented and let these people of Israel go. They came up to the Red Sea while the bad guys are chasing them. God causes the sea to split and they walk across on dry ground. He leads them to this mountain called Sinai where God, you know, there's like smoke and fire and Charlton Heston and it's really intense. And God gives them this law, this, this commandment for how to be well and for how to be different. And part of that was uh, called the Ten Commandments. And uh, they went on to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. God miraculously met their needs. And then a generation passed, and they ended up on the border of the promised land. And before they entered into this new season, Yahweh, God, God instructed Moses, the leader of the people, to review for them all that God had done, to review the commandments and the teachings of God so that the people could be well and could be different from the surrounding nations in the promised land. And so here, God reviewed for them all of the law, but it included the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments in, in 2018 is, is, you know, associated with many things, uh, hopefully the right things and the good things. It's certainly associated with conservative politics. There were fights over, you know, where the Ten Commandments should be placed and what level of importance that has. But the Ten Commandments was more than anything a gift to the people of God to be well and a, and a calling on the people of God to be different. Think how different our world would be if we heeded that, if we didn't murder each other, if we didn't, if we didn't cheat on our spouses, if we didn't covet each other, if we honored our parents. The world would be totally, totally different. But before God gave a single commandment, God established that, those commandments in a place of relationship, in a place of grace. This is Deuteronomy 5.6. This is before a commandment is uttered. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God is establishing a grace-based relationship. I rescued you before you did any of this stuff, before you knew anything about this stuff. And so all of the commands of God are built and predicated on the grace of God. God already extended love and relationship. Um, He extends this grace. And each of these commands is an evidence of grace, a gift of grace, including command number four, which has to do with the Sabbath. We'll read it again, verse verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. 
You observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Holy is like set apart. You go to grandma's house and grandma's got the china cabinet and you own, I mean, I don't know if you ever get out the china, but maybe for Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner or something like that. But you know, it's like the kids don't touch that. It's set apart for a very particular purpose and it's, you know, maybe it's just to be handed down and no one ever uses it. But uh, it's set apart. God says to his people, set this, part of, this day apart for special purposes. Observe it by keeping it apart. Verse 13, he says, six days you'll, you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Um, this is supposed to be a day of contrast. Two observations about this verse. First, this day is supposed to be a day of contrast. Six days you do your work, but on the seventh day, it's totally different. This is supposed to be a day of contrast. The other thing is, lest you think the Bible is advocating for like a lackluster work ethic, the Bible is actually calling for more work than we do now as Americans. It calls for not a five-day work week with two days off, but a six-day work week. It depends how you define work, but it's six days you're called to produce and do labor. But on the seventh day, you're supposed to observe a day of contrast, a day that's different. This is really cool. To whom does this teaching apply? Let's go to the next verse. On this seventh day, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter or male or female servant or ox or donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns so that your male and your female servants may rest as you do. At a time in the world that was deeply patriarchal, at a time where slavery was accepted and widespread, God's people were supposed to observe a complete day of rest. Men and women, son and daughter, male and female servant, even the livestock and even the land was supposed to, include, was supposed to enjoy a complete day of rest. The scope of the Sabbath laws were comprehensive and even applied to servants. And why was this? What's the justification for a complete day of rest for people and the livestock and the land? This is verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Why should you do all this stuff? Remember that you used to be slaves. Slaves can't take a day off, but free people can. Free people can. The God who freed us, who says we're no longer slaves, commands us to take a day off and rest. I stink at resting. I stink at taking days off. Uh, why do we not rest? Why do you not rest? Um, one of those is like you maybe you never learned to. You, like you've, you, you grew up with parents who are workaholics, or you've just got drive, and you, along the way, you just never learned to rest. That's like not a thing. Um, and you just got this take charge kind of attitude, and so it could be it's just ignorance. You didn't ever learn to. We might not rest because it feels weak or selfish, and some of us who are like helpers by default or who are other sinners by default, like it feels like we're doing something wrong to provide self-care. To, to care for ourselves, to rest, to rejuvenate. It feels like a violation of something bigger to care for ourselves or to rest. Some of us don't rest because we feel like we can't, like the world won't go on without you. I remember when I was working in another church, 
I was really early on, and I thought that I was just invaluable. I mean, honestly, I've been there like 18 months. I thought, if I'm gone, like the roof's going to fall down. And, uh, and I was invited to go on this mission trip, and it was like a serious concern. God, I mean, I know I'm only 23 years old, but I'm invaluable here. They need me here. I can't go on a mission trip. The Holy Spirit can't cover it. I, I thought I was invaluable. Um, and I thought, like, I'm truly unable to. But there may be valid reasons. Like, you're the, maybe you're the sole, like, bread earner in your house. Maybe, um, maybe like, your work schedule is, is such that you feel like you can't do it. For one reason or another, you feel like, no, I just can't take a day off. Maybe you have young children. Maybe you have other responsibilities. You just feel like you can't do it. Sometimes we don't rest because we're lazy. And I fall into this category, too, where you have allotted time to do stuff. And because you don't do your stuff in that allotted time, it spills over into a day that could be a day of rest. And so you manage to do like seven days of uh, half-enthusiastic work instead of like marking your days and getting it done so that you can do enjoy a truly unfiltered day of rest. But I think for the majority of us, or for many of us, it's not one of these reasons that we don't rest. I think for many of us, the reason that we don't rest is because we don't know who we are apart from our work. We don't know who we are apart from our work, and that establishes this as an issue about our identity, about our identity, about whether we have intrinsic value as human beings apart from what we do. How validating does it feel to be busy? How good does it feel to have those little red notifications pop up? Somebody thought I was worth emailing or texting, or getting a call. There's, there's like a dopamine hit that we get when we get that notification on our phone. It tells us, even if we hate the content of the email, even if we're annoyed by the text, it tells us we matter. Someone needs to hear from me. How, how validating is it as a human being when you feel needed and when you get that notification? It gives you that dopamine hit. For many of us, work is a way of finding our identity. Work's a way of establishing who we are. I matter. What's the first question we usually ask each other when we meet? Hey, I'm John. You're making a small check. What do you do? It's the first question that we often ask each other. It's a way of establishing our identity. But you go to school, you've got a roadmap for life. Like, okay, 0 through 18, I know what I'm going to do. Some of us go to college, or maybe you go to technical college, and you learn, like, okay, I've got a script, I got to the end of school. And then you get into adulthood, and you've got this wide world before us, and you have a, a sense of, like, I don't know who I am anymore. Oh, but then you find a job. And a job provides you with the next roadmap to tell you who you are and, and establish your worth and your value. It gives you this roadmap, tells you what to value and how to progress. And the problem with all of this is that many of us are working for an identity rather than from an identity. Many of us are doing work so that we can gain a sense of self rather than working out of an abundant sense of self for who we are in Christ and our inherent value as a son and a daughter of God. And our identity is not intrinsically linked to our value or what we can produce or how we can perform for others for a paycheck or for affirmation. That's not our identity. Our truest identity are the words spoken over us in baptism. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the voice of the Father establishing for us our identity. It's beautiful, the picture that we get in the ministry of Jesus. And we're trying to make sense of our own lives. We do well to look at the person, the experience of Jesus. Jesus was raised in relative obscurity. 
spent his first nearly 30 years mostly unknown, just learning his father's trade, his dad's trade. And then before he began his ministry, he's baptized by his cousin for a repentance that he didn't really need to do. He repented on our behalf. And his father, before he established his ministry, before he ascended the cross and was resurrected and ascended to the place of glory, before he did any of that, his father spoke the words over him in baptism that he speaks over us today. You're my son that I love, and with you I'm well pleased. Then he went off to launch his ministry. It was from an identity as one who is eternally beloved of the Father that Jesus exercised who he was. He did his vocation. It was from an identity and not in order to gain his Father's approval that he did his life and his ministry. When we don't know who you are apart from your work, if you don't have a sense of identity, man, it is scary. But in baptism as followers of Jesus, we're given a gift of who we are. Work often, as we talked about escapism last week, work often helps us escape from the vulnerabilities of life. It, it helps us to escape feeling lost in life. Well, I feel really like confident as a junior acquisitions officer, or I feel confident as a, a mechanic, or I feel confident as a second grade teacher, but I feel way less confident as just a person, as a spouse, as a friend, as an uncle, as an aunt, as, a, as just a human being. When I slow down apart from my work, I, I feel pretty lost. And ceasing work and entering into rest reveals to us our vulnerabilities. Rest reveals our vulnerabilities. But here's the thing, and this is the gift that may be for you from the Holy Spirit today. Here's the gift for you. Learning to be well means learning to live in reality, to tell the truth about yourself. Learning to be well means learning to live in reality, and the reality is that we are deeply vulnerable. Vulnerable, I don't mean like I'm going to be up here and share my secrets. Like, no, I don't mean that kind of vulnerability. I mean, we're, like, these bodies of ours are prone to decay. If Callan came up and punched me in the face, don't do that. I would feel that. I did hear a story. Billy Joe Doherty uh, once got punched in the face during communion. Uh, that, was a, that was a story. I hope that never happens sidetrack. Uh, but to live in reality is to, to acknowledge that we live with vulnerabilities. These bodies of ours are vulnerable. They get sick. They get tired. They need cared for. These souls of ours, these spirits of ours, these minds of ours are, are, are prone to discouragement, and they need renewal. They need stimulation. They need care. Our relationships are prone to vulnerability. They need attention, and they need care, and our identities are sure fragile. And our identity needs to be cared for, and we need to remember who we are. And we need to know who we are apart from our work. And the God who made us, the God who knows our tendency to find our identity in anything but Him, longs to give us a gift and to join us in that vulnerability and help us to be made new. The God who knows our deepest biological and spiritual and relational vulnerabilities calls us to rest. And you think, well, why would God ask that of us? What's God's angle here? This happened, this is a verse at the very end of the Ten Commandments here. God just says, it's like, here like the sigh and the longing of God. Oh, I wish that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always. Why? Because I want it to go well with them. And I want it to go well with their children. The heart of the Father is for you to be well. God longs for you to receive the gift He has for us and learn to be well. 
And how do we do it? How, what will it look like to begin to practice um, a remembrance and observance of Sabbath? And I think that there are three key words for us. The first is ceased. The second is fee- cease. The second is feast. And the third is remember. Now, here's the thing. We all have very different lives. We all have very different needs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out some things that may not apply exactly to your situation, but don't cop out of, of this conversation by coming up with an excuse. Hear the spirit of what I'm getting at. This is what the Pharisees did with Jesus. And every time they got on Jesus for being, they were being super legalistic about the Sabbath. Jesus said, remember, Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So hear the invitation to be well, to cease, to feast, and to remember. The first word is cease. And this is really the essence of Sabbath. Six days are for work. One day is for ceasing, for stopping. So think about what occupies your week. What constitutes your work or your vocation? What do you produce? An observance of Sabbath means one day a week you have a complete cessation of labor. One day a week you have a complete work stoppage. Turn off your email, hide your phone, don't go in the office, pretend that you've been suspended with pay for a day. For an entire day, stop. Just quit it. Um, you know, it's the end of the test, and the teacher says pencils down, like, you got to stop. Completely stop. Um, stop working. For those of us who are employers, there are a lot of employers in the room. You have people who work to, for you. You are ridiculously in charge in helping to cultivate a culture of rest. So maybe you need to turn off the email server one day a week. Maybe you need to stop checking your email. Maybe you need to be the one to stop texting your employees that reminder. Get a notepad, write down the thought, and talk to them about it the next day. Shut off the email server. When you do your performance review, talk about, hey, how come you've never taken a single vacation day? And while you're at it, sit down with your spouse or your good friends and have a conversation about, hey, why have I never taken a vacation day? Why is it that I never take a day off? All of us are consumers. We pay other people for goods. Unless there's some really creative, resourceful people in the room, you go to a store from time to time. One day a week, what does it look like for us to stop doing things that cause other people to work? You know, the, the, the vision of Sabbath was holistic. The animals get a day off. The land gets a day off. The servants get a day off. Why can't we stop ordering on Amazon for one day? You can choose not to have Sunday and Saturday delivery. You can wait a day. What would it look like to not go to the grocery store, not to go to the restaurant on a, on a given day uh, so that people can rest and the market responds Lots of you are going to have opinions about this. What do I know? I'm a pastor. Adam, keep it to yourself, okay? You know, there's a time in which we observe that. I'm not talking about some, like, puritanical, like, return to blue laws. What I'm talking about, in as much as it depends on you, how can you keep other people from working when they could be resting? Hide your phone completely. Uh, Don't read any nonfiction self-improvement books on this kind of day. You are not a slave. Take a day off for crying out loud. You're not going to fix yourself completely today. Your identity is not your work. Stop comparing. Stop competing. Just chill for a day. Cease. Now, you need to have a conversation with the people you love about what that means for you. But hear the spirit of this. Stop. We are not going to err on the side of legalism. We are all, we're all addicts to activity and behavior. We're going to come up with every excuse in the book to get ourselves to work. So I'm not too worried about legalism here. Quit it. 
Feast. You cease and you feast. Feast I'm using is like a catch-all phrase here uh, for uh, play, relax, take pleasure in God's world. Take pleasure in God's world. Uh, On Sabbath, we should cook a really good meal. Um, Take a nap. Go to the gathering place. Be silly. Uh, Connect with other people. Connect with family and friends. Married couples have sex on the Sabbath. Uh, Read really good stories. If you play an instrument, play an instrument. Play music on that day. Play board games with other people. And here's the principle of, of, of feasting on the Sabbath. Do things that restore your soul. Do things that connect you uh, with, with other people and with God. And feast and play is different than leisure. Leisure is mindless escapism. Watching like binging on Netflix for five hours is not the spirit of the Sabbath, okay? Binging on Netflix is not feasting. Sabbath should restore and enhance your soul and your joy, not merely help you escape the drudgery of the other six days. And and, and as we think about this and you start to go into logistics, there's a really important social component to Sabbath because it's hard to observe this like with your family if absolutely nobody else in your tribe is doing it. If everybody else is planning work days on the day where you're trying to rest, it's super hard. There's a social component to this, which is what gets at being a community shaped by the gospel. We do this together. For different seasons of life, you may have to get super creative about how you do this. So create a child care swap system for how you like watch each other's kids so that you can do different restful behaviors. Get to know older people in the church who've been empty nesters for a while and their kids live elsewhere and they would love to be around you and your children. Um, If you're single, make Sabbath like a special day to be with friends. If you're married, invite single people and widows and widowers into your home so that you can build relationships with them. Let them share your family rest. The point is we need to help each other work hard to get off the treadmill, to get out of the hamster wheel. Cease. Feast. And that leads us to the last word, which is remember. And God justifies the command to Sabbath with the word remember. Remember that you used to be slaves in Egypt. Sabbath should be marked by remembering behaviors. That's why corporate worship, I think, on the Sabbath is is critical. We remember our story. We remember our identity. We center our soul. Not only do we reconnect with family and friends and with ourselves, we reconnect with our Creator. And parents, if you don't teach your kids to remember, we're teaching them to forget. There was this uh, satirical, you guys know the Babylon Bee, it's the Christian version of the onion. There's a satirical headline, it said, after 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents shocked by child's lack of faith. Parents, if we don't teach our kids to remember, we teach them to forget. Remember our story, remember our creator. Sabbath should be, for Christians today, we, we observe it on Sunday because Sunday's resurrection day. It's the day we remember uh, that God is creating a new and a beautiful world through Jesus. It's the day we remember that we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. It's the day that we remember that we're no longer slaves to sin. Our identity is not tied to our performance or what we can produce for anyone else. Our identity is who we are as son or daughter, beloved of God, His pleasure and His absolute delight. The resurrection reminds us that we live in a world where God causes life to emerge from death, not a world that's so fragile that you can't take a day off. 
Uh, In the book Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warren said this. She said, what if Christians were known as a counterculture community of the well-rested? People who embrace our limits with zest and even joy. As believers, we can relish rest not only as necessary, but as an embodied response to the truth of Scripture. We are finite, weak creatures who are abundantly cared for by our strong and loving Creator. Have you ever given yourself permission to just imagine, like, I don't have to live like this? When you're annoyed about the text that you get at 10 o'clock at night about the work thing, you know, there's a way to not get that. There's a way to practice boundaries. There's a way to get out of the hamster wheel. There's a way to live a life that is orderly and fruitful and flourishing. It may be difficult. It may take creativity. It certainly takes a community. But this is the gift that God longs to give us. If you want to learn to be well, you have to practice it. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Some of you raised your hand, you're weary and burdened. Jesus longs to give us rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Remember the command, the, the, the reflection of God at the end of the commandments? Oh, their hearts will be inclined to fear me, and they'd live in this way so that it may go well with them. God longs for things to go well with you. So we can join him in this, this glorious labor, co-working with Christ to bring about the renewal of all things. He wants to give us rest. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, most of our life is not characterized by rest. It's characterized by frenzy. I'm a mess. I'm all over the place. Uh, work comes home with me. We bring uh, home issues with us to work. Uh, Our life feels disorderly, chaotic, without boundaries. Um, Most of us have a limited sense of of really who we are and what value we have apart from the things that we can produce. We bury ourselves in our work because there's less vulnerability there. We know how to be successful at work. It's really hard to be successful with kids who won't go to sleep and with with spouses and communication issues and and friendships that sometimes go off track. It's really hard to to deal with the unknown there. It's easy for us to busy ourselves in, in whatever occupies our time. I pray that your spirit would move in the church that we could hear the words again spoken over us in baptism, that we're your children, and therein lies our value and our identity. One who is beloved, one who is treasured, one who is worth dying for to rescue. God, help us to be courageous in the way that we are countercultural and and being people of rest. Uh, Give us a deep conviction. If any of us murdered someone, we'd be deeply grieved, but we let each each other off the hook when we don't observe the Sabbath. Help us learn to be obedient for our good and for your glory in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.